Dial with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. 100% electric and pulling from two worlds, the sky and the sea. Enter what's being called sea gliders, the viceroys, the latest green vessel that a new company is gambling on to take us into a greener future. A partnership between Mokolele Airlines and the company Regent is preparing to take off. The target date is 2025, and the two companies announced a deal to begin a feasibility study. Here's uh, Regent CEO Billy Thalmeyer talking about how the company hopes to cut greenhouse gases by marrying maritime technology with that of sustainable aviation. He put it this way, think of a flight of a pelican to soar and to glide. Hawaii is such a, a, a unique and interesting market. You know, it's been a hotbed of aviation uh, really since the dawn of aviation because of the distances between the islands, the, you know, uh, the, the length, the treachery of the waterways between the islands, too. It's really the, the perfect market. And so, uh, you know, we've naturally seen uh, a lot of innovation come to Hawaii in, in the form of aviation. And what Regent's doing is, is sort of a take on that, actually a parallel, not aviation per se. We're using flying technology, and our vehicle uh, has wings and, and flies on air and flies fast. Um, but we're actually doing so in the maritime uh, sector. We're going dock to dock over water, which still is perfectly suited for Hawaii. So Regent builds sea gliders. Sea gliders are all-electric flying boats. Uh, you basically board them uh, at the dock like you would board a ferry, and so you don't need to go through uh, sort of the agita and, and uh, time of an airport. Uh, you just go down to the dock. Then we proceed through the harbor, actually on our hydrofoils or in sort of the near coastal areas where there might be traffic. And so we're using that technology that you might see on the e-foil surfboards or the America's Cup racing yachts, these hydrofoils pick our sea gliders up out of the water so that we have uh, a very smooth, a very comfortable, wave-tolerant ride as we go that's also very quiet and low wake and therefore low impact on sort of the, the surrounding community and shores. And then we take off onto our wing once we get out in the open water. And this is where we accelerate to, to aircraft speeds, 180 miles an hour, but we do so all within a wingspan of the surface of the water. And we're flying on this cushion of air. It's called ground effect, and it's what you see pelicans flying over as they fly between islands. And so w sea gliders are a boat where it makes sense to be a boat by shore. They're, they're flying like an airplane where it makes sense to have airplane speed, uh, which will be out in the open water in between the islands. They'll do all of this with zero emissions. They're 100% battery electric powered. Um, and they'll do all of it at about half the cost uh, of an aircraft as well, because uh, the battery technology not only, you know, supports a sustainable mission uh, of where we see transportation technologies going, but also actually drastically lower maintenance costs because there's so few moving parts. So we really see sea gliders uh, as sort of the best of all worlds, right? It lowers your time uh, door to door. It, it lowers uh, the, the cost of traveling on these uh, regional routes uh, in between the islands, and it completely eliminates emissions. So we're very excited about sea gliders in the Hawaii ecosystem. So what's the rollout timetable? Yeah, we're planning uh, entry to service for sea gliders globally uh, at the end of 2025. Um, we're excited to announce our partnership with uh, Mokulele uh, as uh, one of our earliest adopters as our Hawaii launch partner. Uh, the exact Hawaii launch date still TBD, and, and we're excited to have uh, Stan Little's leadership and sort of determining that rollout plan specifically. But globally, you, you can expect to see sea gliders starting to hit the market around the end of 2025. So what other places are entertaining this idea? Where, where could you use these? Sure. Well, really, anywhere where there's coastal cities and, and people that want to travel on the cities. So, you know, we're a Boston-based team, and so uh, we're looking at routes like Boston to New York uh, or even Boston to the Massachusetts Islands and Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. We're looking on the West Coast like L.A. to San Diego or Santa Barbara with existing battery technology and with some of the new battery technology that we see in prototype phase today, we can even stretch that out towards something like in L.A. to San Francisco, serving tens of millions of people a year. And then globally, uh, we're looking at places like the Mediterranean Sea and some of the island chains there, the, the English Channel crossing and one of the centers of the global ferry industry. Uh, and of course, Southeast Asia and Japan 
uh, the islands and, and archipelagos that make up that region as well. So this is truly a globally applicable technology. Is it a little tricky because you're kind of a boat and kind of a plane? <laughs> that's, that's kind of the fun part, uh, being kind of a boat and kind of a plane. I'll give you some examples. Uh, in the manufacturing of the vehicle, it's actually been amazing to see uh, some of the technology, some of the composite technologies that are new in the high-performance yacht racing world, melding and merging and taking the best parts in combination with some of the new technologies in the aerospace world. As it pertains to operations of the vehicle, you know, we get the speed of aviation and we're using aviation-grade sensors and flight control systems to protect the flight envelope of this vehicle. But in doing so and in using all this new technology, uh, we can actually make the operations of the captain far simpler. So, we can take all the airplane stuff like roll and pitch and altitude control, and we can let the flight computer handle that in an incredibly safe and robust way. And so that all the captains doing are really boat controls. They're left, right, fast and slow. Uh, and so we can open up some of the training for the operators of these vehicles, make it easier and safer to operate them. Because again, we're combining uh, some aspects of maritime navigation with aviation sensors and flight control systems. Is there more red tape because maybe the regulators can't figure out if you're a boat or a plane? We've actually had some uh, great agreements with the regulators to date. We've been working with the U.S. Coast Guard. We've been in contact with the FAA, certainly, as we proceed through this process. But the Coast Guard has uh, written us a letter with the FAA and copy that acknowledges the Coast Guard as our certification authority. We're with the Coast Guard. We're still certifying this to an incredibly robust, essentially uh, aircraft grade level of safety here. So uh, safety still remains the top priority of both regions and our certification process. But uh, we are firmly working with the Coast Guard on our certification basis, on the operator training uh, on the operational uh, approvals to, you know, take it to uh, Hawaii and, and to other, at least, uh, U.S. harbors. And then we're also working um, with a group called Bureau Veritas. They're a classification society, which is uh, an international regulator of maritime vessels. Uh, and so we're working our certification in parallel between the Coast Guard and Bureau Veritas with sea gliders as maritime vessels. And so as you uh, enter the Hawaii market, have you had discussions with Mokulele Air about, you know, which islands you might start it out with? That's really the exciting thing that we're doing now. While Regent and Mokulele is super excited about uh, this this partnership, uh, the opportunity uh, for sea gliders in Hawaii, the, the first step is to ensure that this is feasible, which is why we're undergoing a, a feasibility study in partnership with Pacific Current as the infrastructure provider to really ensure that, you know, we're, we're dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's on bringing this into market. We've seen how past new modes of transportation been, has been brought into the market. That's, that's not the right way to do this. We've approached the market with a listen-first, community-first, environment-first mindset. We've solicited lots of feedback. The loud and clear message has been do feasibility study before we even talk about you know, where we're operating or timetables to operate. And so we're going into details on those routes in this feasibility study. We're looking at harbors and dock space. We're looking at environmental impact uh, above water and below water, community and noise impact. It's a really exciting and really comprehensive study, and that's really the first step for us. So there are there are tons of opportunities on routes from you know, bringing new mobility and transportation service to currently underserved communities because sea gliders can go where there are no airports and sea gliders can drastically lower the cost of inter-island transportation for commuting. Um, there are also commercial and tourism opportunities for sea gliders as well. So we're exploring several different routes in this feasibility study uh, as the first step before we select one. Yeah, because I can imagine maybe during different times of the year when uh, the surf comes in, <laughs> Uh, that yeah would vary on what be would be a safe approach. Exactly, the the winds change, the waves change, the weather is is certainly a consideration in the feasibility study as well. Our first sea gliders are called Viceroy. They are twelve passenger vehicles. They have about five feet of wave tolerance in the ports, and so five foot waves are still pretty significant waves. Um, still probably couldn't hang on the North Shore, but uh, in many other you know harbors and docks, five feet is pretty significant. 
Uh, so we'll be looking at the weather patterns and, again, really mapping this end-to-end feasibility before we think about, you know, how does this actually enter the market thereafter. And so, you know, how does this work? Because I know, like I said, you connected with Mokalele first, uh, but then Hawaiian Air is also interested. Yeah, so uh, Mokalele is our launch partner, our launch operator in Hawaii. They'll be operating Viceroy, the 12-passenger vehicle. They've placed firm deposits on vehicles to hold their place at the front of the line. Hawaiian Airlines has placed a strategic investment in region. They're excited about the technology, excited about the opportunities for sea gliders in the uh, Hawaii inter-island market. Uh, and so we're working with Hawaiian as well on sort of separate diligence to, to show what this could look like in an even larger vehicle down the road. So Hawaiian Airlines has been a fantastic partner to date, but really the, the feasibility study and the announcement coming out this week is focused on operations, uh, and operations starts with Mokulele operating Viceroy. As we, you know, I said, we sort of approach the Hawaii mm-hmm. ecosystem, listen first. You know, yeah. what, what are the needs? What are the concerns of bringing a new mode of transportation to the islands so that we can do this in, in really the right way? And so actually, you know, in, in interior dimensions, door dimensions have been brought up before, especially in servicing some of the, the currently underserved communities. And so that's something we, we took to heart. You know, uh, Viceroy has a large cargo door with wide clearance. You could, you know, bring fish on and off. Uh, you know, it's, it's much more accessible than some of these small aircraft as well. From Regent's perspective, I think, you know, in, in addition to just being excited about sea glider technology and this opportunity to, to simultaneously, you know, lower travel times, cost of travel and emissions of travel, um, we're really, I think, most thrilled about this this partnership we've formed with both Mokulele and Pacific Current. I mean, you, you think about who is leading innovation in sustainable transportation. It's Southern Airways Express and Mokulele. They were they were electrifying flights years ago, as as you said. They're looking to electrify their fleet now. Stan is a visionary in this space, a service provider in in the Hawaiian Islands, an incredible operating partner. And then Pacific Current Hawaiian Electric Industries just brings all of this industry knowledge and experience in terms of infrastructure development. We think about how can we scale sea glider technology? How can we bring them to more docks? How can we electrify uh, and charge these sea gliders? And perhaps most importantly, how can we enable end-to-end sustainable travel? So not only charge the sea gliders, but where does that electricity come from? How do we get sustainable electricity on the grid? And that is really right in the wheelhouse of Pacific Current and Hawaiian Electric Industries. So they're handling the electricity, the the creation of the sustainable electricity. We're going to pump that sustainable electricity into sea gliders who will use it in an all-electric fashion, no emissions end-to-end, and then Mokulele will bring their experience as an operator and really just bring better connectivity to the islands. That was Billy Thalheimer, co-founder of the company Regent, that today announced a deal with Mokulele Airlines to launch a feasibility study to begin sea glider service to the islands by the end of 2025. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health, observing the national campaign for heat illness prevention, noting that outdoor and indoor heat exposure can be dangerous. More by searching OSHA.gov heat. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Judith Valente, author of How to Be. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my spiritual conversations with Brother Paul Quinnen. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. June 23, 1972 is a day Marilyn Moniz remembers well. It marked a door of opportunity, a path of possibility, and it was thanks to Maui's Patsy Mink. Former congressman and former Honolulu City Councilwoman was the author of Title IX, a federal law mandating equality in education. 
Moniz is a former volleyball standout and University of Hawaii athletic administrator who fondly recalls the five decades that followed. Title IX really set the course for my life, and it's been my privilege to work with Title IX and have that mandate in federal law, and it allowed me to accomplish so many of my dreams, and that's what it is. It's a dream maker. It's open doors for opportunity for women and men. Fifty years ago, it passed in June 23rd, 1972, and that was a great year. Many things were happening in our country, and Patsy Mink, our representative to Congress at that time, fought very hard, and she was the co-author 50 years ago when Title IX passed, and that's why it's named after her, the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunity and Education Act. And I could go on and on, but I'm going to let you ask me another question. But I can set the scene. I know exactly where I was 50 years ago that made that impact on my life. Okay, so take us there. Well, I was down the road here at Kaimiki High School. I have made 18 years old in April. Roe versus Wade had just passed in February. Watergate was happening. And President Richard Nixon signed Title IX into action June 23rd, 1972. In May, I graduated from high school, and I had played volleyball there for three years in a row with my other close, very close teammates, and we were in the gym May, and in comes Walking, the University of Hawaii, very first volleyball coach, Alan Kang, set by the women's athletic director to put a volleyball team together for the University of Hawaii, first time along with a track program. And that was the beginning of the Rainbow Wahine Athletic Program, which by no coincidence is also celebrating its 50th year of providing opportunities for women to play sports and represent the state of Hawaii. And I got to be one of them because Coach Kang recruited about five of us Kaimiki High School Bulldog players. We were the OIA champions my junior and senior year. And I'm sure in his recruiting research, he found out what schools had strong players and strong programs. We were coached by a female coach at the time who also impacted my life, Coach Anona Napoleon, a surfer and a volleyball player at the time. She had three children already. Two were twins. She put them in the car carrier and put them behind the gymnastics mat and so she could hit balls at us. So she trained us for three years, and we were the OIA championship, which led to the UH coach coming to recruit us and invite us to play on his team. Wow. So you were there from the very beginning. What was that experience like for you, knowing that you had doors opening? It was really awesome, beautiful, wonderful I mean, women cry when they tell the story because that's the year a lot of them did not have the opportunities to transition from high school to colleges. Not all of them, many of them did not have women's athletics program. That was the time when this law was the impetus for schools to start to add women's athletics. And the University of Hawaii was one of them. And if it wasn't for Dr. Donna Thompson, who worked in the health education recreation department at the time to take it upon herself because she had come over in the 60s to start a track program for the university. So she had the background and the experience to be able to start an athletic program for us. So we were fortunate to have her there. And she knew Title IX was on the horizon. She was in the national limelight and on committees and in the AIAW, which is the governing association for women, collegiate sports at the time. So she knew how to leverage it. And she did pretty good in starting the program. Opposition, a lot of opposition. But our men's program was generous enough to provide $5,000 to our women's athletics program so our volleyball program could start and our track program could start. So so talk about you know, what you had to work with. 5000 doesn't really go very far. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> so they had to be very creative. We didn't really travel the first two years. We didn't really have scholarships. By my junior year, we had tuition waivers, which helped a lot. And by my senior year, we recruited our very first three mainland recruits that came in, one from Chicago and, one from, and two from California to help make our team a stronger team. 
And my junior and senior year at the University of Hawaii, we were second in the nation to UCLA. We were privileged to go to the national championship because Dr. Donna Thompson raised the money and got some support from the state legislature. And without those women and men, we couldn't have traveled. We went to Portland and took second to UCLA. And in December 75, Adonis and Coach Dave Soji started his career. That was his very first year, was my senior year. And both of them took us to Princeton University to play in our second national championship. And we took second again to UCLA. But the real story there was Dr. Thompson, our women's athletic director, I should just say athletic director, took us down to the national capital and Representative Patsy Mink and Representative Sparky Matsunaga hosted our team to a lunch and we talked about volleyball and sports because she was always an avid sports supporter. I think she played basketball when she was in high school at Maui High. But we took this picture, this classic picture, I have it, on the steps of the National Capitol, the team, seven or eight of us, our trainer and Patsy Mann, December 1975. So I, I treasure that. It's an autograph picture with Patsy in it. Well, we've just learned that uh, her portrait is going to be unveiled and it will hang in Statuary Hall. So everybody needs to know her contribution to making the dreams of so many young girls, young women, come alive. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a great honor. It's really hard to think that, you know, 50 years has gone by, and yet in schools across the country, even here in Hawaii, that girls' programs, girls' athletic programs are just getting the short shrift, you know, that we have to fight. That's true. There's still a lot of work to be done. There's progress every decade there's progress and you know for example my experience at the University of Hawaii I graduated in 76 and one of the purposes of Title IX was to provide educational opportunities for professional schools for women because there were quotas at that time in the 70s for women in medical school and law school and that's one of the things that Patsy had to fight against because she could not get into medical school. She applied, as I understand, into a dozen medical schools because her dream was to be a doctor. And she ended up, because she couldn't get into medical school, to law school at the University of Chicago. So that's always in the back of her mind as she's championing women's rights in Title IX through this process in the late 60s and and the early 70s. And that's when the university's law school and medical school also started in the 70s. So I had the sports experience. I got to play volleyball. I didn't know sitting at Kaimiki Gym in May I'd ever play volleyball competitively except for maybe club and local women national volleyball, not at a school anymore. But I got that privilege because of her efforts and Dr. Donna Thompson. And so we have to remember that the medical school and the law school, when they started, Title IX was already in effect. And so they didn't have to labor to correct inequities for women at the law school. They could just develop the law school and the medical school, keeping that in mind. And I'm sure the law school's probably 50-50 and the medical school's probably close to that these days. All those efforts started 50 years ago. So I got to go to the UH Law School. You know, and that was awesome because that set the career for me. I was a deputy prosecuting attorney in Maui. Then I went into parks and recreation. And then in 89, I came back to the university and I walked in the footsteps of Dr. Donis Thompson because I was the third women's athletic director at the University of Hawaii. So I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity. So I not only played, but I got to be an administrator at the university. And when I got there, we were already in Title IX violation. We already had an investigation in the late 70s and the early 80s. And there were some legal things that happened nationwide. But when I came in in 1989, I picked up the mantle, I looked in the files, and I educated myself. What is Title IX? Because I had done my law school paper on Title IX. I didn't know I'd ever become athletic administrator. It happened, and that's why I always say it was just part of my destiny. And I was in the right place, born at the right time, and went to the right high school and then college. Well, I was just going to ask, you know, what did you see, you know, at the University of Hawaii? you know, um, the battles that you had to, you know, be involved in to kind of 
get them to to be in compliance? Well, I think the toughest battles when Donis developed the program, because by the time I was a senior at UH Athletics, she had seven or eight sports already going, struggling, but already going. So she had the vision. She put the initial programs together. And it was tough working with the men's program at that time because, you know, sometimes we're short-sighted and we see our financial resources and it's a natural thing not to want your program to suffer. So it was a battle and a struggle. So when I came in in 89, Adonis was still there. She was wrapping up a 30-year career at the University of Hawaii. And we put a group together um, that she had done with Eve Anderson back in the 70s. It was more of a fundraising support group for women's athletics. We put that little group together because we knew we'd have to have struggle. We we didn't need to have support behind women's athletics because there was a lot of changes that needed to be done in 89. So Donna's kind of gave me a model. She goes, you don't have to be like I was. You can be your own personality and fight the battle in your own way. So I took that to heart because I have to work with all these people. Um, We have to figure out how we're going to do this together to build a strong women's athletic program at the University of Hawaii. Well, what were you, I guess, most proud of in your time there? I think it's adding four to six sports along the way, getting people to see what Title IX, educate them and make them aware. We only had 98 Rainbow Wahine in 1989. By the time we finished, we had over 200 because the men had 260 already. So they would be equitable in their participation opportunities because access to the athletic program really is the most important thing. If you don't have access or the opportunity to play your sport, you don't have anything. You can't get scholarships. You can't travel. You can't vie for a championship. You don't have a team and things like that. So to provide, to me, the most important thing was to have the opportunity to play like I had. I was really fortunate to be there at the right place and the right time and people fighting for our opportunity to play. And that was Marilyn Moniz, volleyball standout and former assistant Uh, athletic administrator at UH talking about the opportunities that Title IX has given her over the last five decades. Moni says last month she was invited to attend the Hawaii Athletic Directors Association meeting and uh, sharing the stage at a forum were three female high school athletic directors. She said 30 years ago there was only one. Our Honolulu Civil Beat Reality Check today spotlight, spotlights a new trend of home dialysis. Reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us today to talk about it. Good morning, Anita. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so this idea of getting dialysis at home, I mean, that's just remarkable. Yeah, it's really interesting. I um, was familiar with dialysis centers, but I didn't hear about this option until I started writing about the challenges that some dialysis patients were having getting to and from dialysis centers three times a week and the way that that commute was really wearing on them. Um, I talked to a couple of nephrologists who said that nowadays they actually recommend at-home dialysis first for patients um, to see if they like it and that most patients actually do, especially in Hawaii, where most patients uh, stick with this if they try out this program. And you spent some time with a patient that was learning how to operate this machine. Yes, I spoke with uh, Kalani Pagan, and I watched him in the process of his training. So he is a Molokai resident who is here on Oahu for a five-week training program in order to learn how to operate the machine. And he's somebody who's actually been on dialysis for a long time, 15 years. And it's just been really wearing on him, wearing on his body. And um, it reached a point earlier this year where he and his wife were seriously considering uh, whether he should, you know, stop dialysis. He which might have meant him ending up in hospice. And that's when he learned about the opportunity to do in-home dialysis. And you know what this would mean is that not only would he no longer have a commute to and from the dialysis center, but he'd be able to do dialysis more frequently. And so um, it would be more similar to the way that the kidneys you know, work in our bodies. And what I hear from him and other patients is it's actually a gentler process on the body. And you feel less exhausted, um, you know, for a lot of people, they are able to just do it at a more convenient time instead of waiting for that one appointment time that the dialysis clinic has uh, room for them. Um, and so 
you know, he's actually really excited and feels like this has given him a new chance at life. Yeah, because you don't have to build in the travel time to get to these dialysis centers, you know, because you're usually hooked up to those machines for several hours. Right. And, you know, you're still hooked up with machines on this. And no dialysis is, you know, completely comfortable. Um, but uh, what I'm hearing is that, you know, for at least one patient I talked to who actually lives in IA, she loves that she can just do it at home while she watches her Korean soap. She doesn't have to sort of socialize. She doesn't feel like she's on display in this big room of a lot of people. Um, and the other um, thing, though, to keep in mind is that there are some drawbacks. and Not everybody can do this, or not everybody will be happy with it. Um, there is a risk of infection if you are, you know, doing it at, um, you know, at home by yourself and with your caregiver if something goes wrong. And so that's why there's a lot of support provided to patients to try to make sure that they're always the machines always operating properly, that everything is, um, you know, clean and and operating the way it should be. Um, and then there's also a risk of burnout just the way that there is when you're going into the clinic. If you have somebody who's your caregiver helping you, they, you know, might uh, eventually become exhausted by that process. And so that's one of the reasons why people sometimes don't continue with at-home dialysis even if they start. Well, I, I can see why some patients would feel, I guess, more comfortable having a caregiver uh, because if something goes wrong, you know, I mean, that's a lot of stress, um, you know, to deal with while you're on the machine. Exactly. And so one thing that nephrologists and dialysis companies were emphasizing to me is that they um, see this as a priority. You know, the uh, Medicare reimbursement rate for this uh, recently changed, and so they are, you know, doing what they can to really promote this um, this option and more so than they were in the past because it is seen as something that and has better outcomes overall for health and also, um, you know, is, is something that, can improve just your general happiness if you're spending more time with your your family. And so what they're doing is they are providing a 24-7 support. You know, if if your um, caregiver is putting your vitals into a um, tablet and updating what you are, um, you know, what your blood pressure is, then a nurse can see that in real time. Um, You know, there's numbers you can call if something goes wrong with the machine. And so um, they, they want patients to know that if this is something you're interested in, that this is an option and a potential solution for, for people who are, you know, exhausted from taking the handy van three times a week, you know, or driving three times a week um, to centers for this care. Yeah, re- remarkable uh, with the uh, advances in technology. But thank you so much, Anita. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. shortage of early education opportunities in child care across the country continues to present challenges. HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us this morning to talk about the challenges we face locally and what's being done to overcome them. Good morning, Casey. Morning, Catherine. Uh, yes, so uh, early education, child care in the state, a lot of emphasis being put on that, uh, especially with the pandemic happening and uh, you know, a lot of support going to these efforts as well, like with uh, CARES Act funding and ARPA funding, making sure that uh, these essential workers have places to drop off their kids. But, uh, you know, this is something that has been going on even prior to the pandemic, where uh, there is a lack of access to uh, early education, pre-kindergarten, also, uh, you know, child care services, and that the state is no stranger to that as well. But today's story was actually um, the Office of Executive o- uh, Office on Early Learning, which helps uh, oversee the expansion, quality, and coordination of the state's public pre-K system. They have a brand new uh, executive director. I was able to sit down with her one-on-one to kind of uh, pick her brain a little bit about uh, the challenges that the state faces and uh, kind of going through the positives of what where the state is right now and also the negatives. Uh, Yuko Arikawa Cross has more than 20 years of experience uh, in the public education sector. She's uh, she was most recently a principal at Daniel K. Inoue Elementary School at uh, in Wahiawa, and she helped oversee the um, Head Start program at that school, which is a, a preschool program uh, serving four and five year olds uh, to get them ready for uh, kindergarten. Uh, that is one of the classrooms that. Uh, 
was able to participate in this program that EOEL uh, helped coordinate with a partnership with the DOE. And that school is soon going to have a second classroom added to that. So it just kind of speaks to the success that uh, and the need that is there. Uh, and this is Arakawa Cross kind of going through some of the things that our current state has uh, with childcare and also early education options. We do have public pre-K options like EOEL public pre-K in partnership with the Hawaii Department of Education. There's also charter school public pre-Ks and private community-based childcare programs. So center-based and family childcare, family child interaction learning programs, which are focused on multi-generational early childhood support. And, you know, as I, we stated before, heading into this segment, uh, lots of issues with the early education system, especially with um, the pandemic happening, because a lot of people, uh, educators, decided to leave the field, and there was some uh, closures. Um, some educators that I have spoken with uh, in the past have said, you know, the pay isn't there. Uh, they would quit and go to a job at Target and would get paid more at Target than uh, at the school, and it is a little... Um, worrying for state lawmakers and not only that people who actually work in the field and there was a like i said there was a lot of support going into the pandemic with uh, cares and arpa funding to help stabilize this field and our call cross kind of outlines some of the things that uh, the federal support went to due to some federal critical aid which we received like CARES and the ARPA funding, we we're able to provide direct financial aid to both providers and families. And we are also thankful that the legislature was able to restore some state funding to assist with tuition assistance for our preschool open doors program. However, we still need to find a way to stabilize our field, to continue to invest in these programs and the providers to make childcare more affordable for our families. And just to kind of cap off, you know, recent legislative sessions, uh, the legislature passed an act where uh, they would help subsidize or give stipends to early education students at the University of Hawaii. Uh, that's still in the process of uh, being done. And in the last session, you know, the legislator Legislature is investing about $200 million to repair and to improve preschool facilities in the state, as well as restoring $7 million for tuition assistance for uh, low-income families. And uh, as well, just to kind of get this sense of how bad uh, the uh, educator shortage is in the state, they're also asking for a report just to kind of get like an inventory of who's still in working in this field and what providers are still out there. And, you know, Arakawa Cross uh, says, you know, it's really important to continue supporting early education, and this is her take. When we look at prenatal to age five when they enter kindergarten, this is the most critical period of human development. And if we are able to support parents and families and support the children, it really only helps to build a more healthy and resilient person to contribute to our communities and our societies. And so we'll see uh, how she does as a new executive director, a lot of uh, coordination with a lot of different uh, state agencies and departments, not only that, private organizations as well. But uh, main role is to expand pre public pre-K in the state. And mm -hmm. we'll see if uh, prenatal uh, to age three is also going to be included in there. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR reporter Casey Harlow. To read more of his stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. An observatory in Arizona is feeling the heat as firefighters work to extinguish a nearby raging wildfire. Astronomer Christopher Phillips shares the latest with HPR's Dave Lawrence on your Monday Stargazer.
Stargazer time. I'm Dave Lawrence, and it's time for our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, we are so grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, the planets of Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn continue to be visible in our eastern and southern skies at dawn. The moon this week is passing through its last quarter phase, and so conditions should be favorable for stargazing as the week goes on. Man, I know one place not so favorable for stargazing, and hopefully you've got an update. There's actually a pretty heavy-duty observatory. It's being threatened by one of these wildfires. You know anything about that? Yeah, there is indeed, and it's not often that events here on planet Earth impact the activity of astronomers. But when they do, it can be quite dramatic. This is the case for the Kitt Peak National Observatory Complex in Arizona, which is currently in the midst of an enormous wildfire that is raging in the mountains there. Fire crews are attempting to assess the damage at the site, which is currently extremely hazardous to approach. Needless to say, though, all the observatory staff have been evacuated from the mountain and all science activities have now ceased. Sounds very serious. Any ideas on the origin? Well, natural causes. The fire was ignited by a lightning strike mm. during a period of extended thunderstorms that have been rolling over Arizona for the past week and are set to continue over the weekend. What's up with the firefighters getting to the actual facility? Well, they've managed to clear some of the areas around several domes. and They've also managed to secure things like propane tanks and other infrastructure that is at risk from the flames. Assistance has come also in the form of aerial retardant drops that have managed to keep some of the fire at bay, at least for now. And um, tell people about this place. This is a unique site. It has a bunch of different telescopes, right? Yeah, it's quite a collection at Kitt Peak. We have four major facilities, including a large 12-meter telescope and a sister facility of the Very Long Baseline Array, which is located on Mauna Kea. However, it's not possible to access the extent of the damage at this time to these facilities, so unfortunately, we're going to have to wait. We know who's going to be bringing us up to speed on that one, and fingers crossed they can dodge it with the fire. That's really serious stuff right there. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, designing more than 2,000 projects since 1988, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. On January 6, 2021, then-Vice President Pence certified the results of the 2020 election. The committee investigating the attack on the Capitol says the pressure from Trump not to certify the results was enormous. It is unambiguous that the Vice President does not have the authority to reject electors. Join us for live special coverage and analysis of the fourth public hearing tomorrow from NPR News. Live coverage begins at 7 a.m. here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from the Queen's Health System, committed to the community's health, providing vaccinations that help to protect against COVID-19. Learn more by calling Queen's Vaccination Line at 808-691-2222. Big waves, big lessons. The monster waves of Waimea and Makaha make for schooling like no other. And tomorrow, the Hawaii Theater plays host to a film that tells the story of how lifeguarding came to be. Producers hope that Hawaii lifeguards will turn out for the screening of Big Wave Guardians that celebrates the profession. Modern-day ocean safety has its humble roots with Hawaii wave riders, surfers whose skill and innovation helped shape the life-saving tools that pioneered rescues as the surfing bar began to get raised. Bigger waves, bigger risk. Jim Kempton is a writer on the film. He learned to surf in the reefy breaks of Guam and went on to become editor and publisher of Surf Magazine. He currently heads the California Surf Museum. It was kind of interesting. We came over, I guess, in January, and we were intending to do a piece on the North Shore because this is a sort of a series on surfing culture, and obviously the North Shore is an epicenter of it. And when we got done and we came back and we looked at what we had, there wasn't much, there wasn't enough there to do the North Shore, and I kind of said, you know, the North Shore could be a whole series of its own. But of the 27 people that we interviewed, 17 of them are lifeguards, and the things that they were telling us about that in particular were just so fascinating and so compelling as stories that I think we have a great piece here to do. And Marty Hoffman, who is our producer to his everlasting credit, said, you know, I love this. I think there's a lifeguard in every 
city at every pool in the nation, and they're all guys that people there respect, and this is their hero's heroes, and let's do it. So we got the green light, and, and we wrote the script, and everyone really liked the script, and the director was just a, a fantastic, talented young guy who I'd never realized before how different it is to write scripts than writing a book. Because you, it almost sounds silly to say, here's where the dramatic part is, but it's up to the director to take that and make it come alive. And he, I think, really did an epic job of doing that. And so when we got done, we just realized that we had something that was a story that really had never been told before. And yet one that's so worthy of being told. And all these guys who you know, not only work to save people's lives, but also are some of the best surfers in the world as well, oftentimes. So it was interesting to me, though, just to learn the history of lifeguarding, you know, through, mm-hmm. through the people that mm-hmm. you interviewed. And it it's amazing to think that, yeah, you started out trying to do a film on something else and it morphed into a stronger story. It's often that way in life. You know, you, you go into discovery and you find things that you never expected and sometimes don't find what you were hoping for or don't find enough of it to do, or you just you have an idea about something that's just too large. One of the things that I think is really important, and you look at so many of the great films, they're really small pictures that really explore something in depth. And you do showcase uh, a lot of the lifeguards from the North Shore, you know, because they deal with those monster waves there at Waimea. Um, you, you highlight... Um, uh, the Kaulana family, you know, uh, Makaha and the history and all the things that Brian has tried to do, teaching kids and teaching and passing on what his father, you know, raised him with, those, those uh, values uh, and skills. Right. But the fact that what we've developed here then is taught in other places is maybe something that, right. that people may not appreciate. Well, you know, it, it, that was another really, really um, satisfying thing about the, the response that we've gotten from people is just how much I think people love, and in this case, it happens to be a, a, a very true and, and, and not contrived story, that um, people love to see uh, something spring up kind of organically and take the world by storm, and especially when it's something that has such a positive effect on so many people around the world and to see it come from you know from people who really know the subject and are doing something to save lives and make the world a better place all that's kind of really satisfying to the audience even when there's some sadness about losing people because you don't want that to happen but seeing good that comes out of that rather than just being a tragedy i think is really really uplifting and compelling for people there was one scene in the film that i had to chuckle at you know and it was the film that that highlights uh, duke hanamoku you know the program where he was on uh, this is your life and the thought about thanking the, those people that duke rescued the fact that it took 30 some years for them to be able to thank him I remember that crossed my mind when I first saw that clip. So uh-huh. I really appreciated, yeah. you know, the fact that you had that that segment about people, about the lifeguards thanking people who helped them in their lives. Yeah, and, and as you saw, I mean, a lot of those people, and I mean, we probably should have made a more of a note of it, but I mean, you know, like Kalani Chapman and Mikey Red and Cole Christensen, those are some of the best surfers in the world. Dusty Payne. I mean, they are professionals and at the top of their game. And it's, it's really moving to see them so thankful and so appreciative about it. And we spent a lot of time digging up some of the people, you know, finding some of the people that were saved by people who always wanted to thank them, like the guy that saved by Johnny Angel and, uh, and Mark. He was someone we had to track down, but he was so, so appreciative that we did, and he got a chance to, to say what he did. So, yeah, there's a lot of very poignant moments. And so this film makes a big debut, big screen debut, uh, over at the Hawaii Theater Tuesday, correct? That's right. That's the premiere, and we're hoping to have all of the lifeguards there. We're hoping to have all of the people from Hawaii, because we really think this is a celebration of sort of, you know, part of the Polynesian culture, the fact that these people are such water people, and that the culture is so in, embedded in, in this whole 
world. And like we were saying, people didn't really need to, to deal with lifeguarding because they were comfortable in the water. But as things have progressed and, and other peoples have come, it, you know, it's become super important. So getting that message out, I think, is something that's really wonderful. And we'll be showing the film in theaters all over Hawaii on all of the islands. You'll be able to Google BigWaveGuardians.com and be able to find the showings that'll be coming up. What about plans to screen it uh, on the mainland? So we have about 15, we're calling them premieres because of the premieres in that area. So in the San Diego area, in the Orange County, in Los Angeles, in Santa Cruz, and in Cocoa Beach, and Virginia Beach, and New York, and New Jersey. So all around the country, even in the Great Lakes, and then that will roll out to a couple hundred theaters are planned. So we hope to get a very wide distribution of, of it theatrically. And so we leave you with a trailer of that film, Big Wave Guardians. It debuts at the Hawaii Theater tomorrow. Come out and salute our lifeguards. When a surfer is knocked unconscious, you only have about four to six minutes before they run out of oxygen. Lifeguards, it's like a group of warriors. In a moment's notice, they'll put their life on the line to save a perfect stranger. I've had multiple friends smash their head into the reef and, you know, thank God the lifeguards were there. I don't think they would have made it. For us growing up in Hawaii, surfing has always been like a village mentality or family atmosphere. Because when something happens here, everything stops. Because what we cherish is life in general. You don't become a lifeguard to be thanked. You become a lifeguard because you want to help people. It's such a rush to save another person's life. I always want to be there to be a first responder and give them their next birthday. When I do see somebody that could potentially have passed away is still around, that's the greatest gift there is, you know, is, is life itself. Look at that wave taking everyone out. The skis running for cover. We reach the victim no matter how big it is. 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet, 60 feet. We ain't gonna let go of them. We ain't gonna let go. Well, that is it for today. Tomorrow, we hear from filmmaker Kim Basford, who made a documentary about former Hawaii congressman, uh, congresswoman and Title IX author Patsy Mink. Do you have a Title IX story you'd like to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? Well, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>